If you follow the hiking trails that wind around the hills here in Fox Chapel, you'll come eventually to this old rotten bridge. And it stretches across a small stream and several of the wooden planks have already given way under various travelers. And every time I come to it, I kind of tiptoe, I step carefully, and I wonder to myself, can I really trust this? Is this actually able to hold me? Is it up to the task? Many of you here at Christ Church are familiar with those questions because you've sat in the plastic folding chairs that we have in the parish hall. Anyone who weighs more than 100 pounds has asked this question surely before when they sit down on those plastic folding chairs. Can I really trust this? Is this able to hold me? Is it up to the task? I can assure you that the answer is no. <laughs> we have seen, did I just admit liability there? Uh, you can, we might need to delete this sermon, but uh, don't be careful in the folding chairs, seriously. Uh, we're in Hebrews 7 this morning, and this is the question that the text is asking about Jesus. Can he really deal with the full weight of my pain and my guilt and shame and disillusionment? Can he? Is he up to the priestly task of reconciling me even me, to God? Is he able to hold me? Or should I seek some sort of alternative means of sin management? David Peterson argues in his commentary on Hebrews in the Tyndale series uh, that the letter of Hebrews was addressed to a group of Christians who were doubting whether Jesus was actually up to the task of being a high priest. This is what he writes, quote, early Christianity could offer no parallel to the ritual trappings of Judaism. In place of the temple to which all Jews looked as the center of worship, Christians met in different homes without even a central meeting place. They had no altar, no priests, no sacrifices. So the Jewish Levitical priesthood had these buildings. At this, remember the, the temple built by Herod. It was this magnificent, grand complex, and there were fancy garments and ephods and elaborate rituals, and it made it feel religious. Do you come to church because you want to feel religious? It made it feel like it was effective. It's like, well, this feels religious, so it must be doing something. And the gospel didn't offer that same feel of institutional legitimacy, and I don't know about you, but I often crave institutional legitimacy. I want to feel like what I'm doing is effective in some way. And so these Jewish Christians were doubting that Jesus' priesthood was up to the task because it didn't, he just didn't give them that daily feeling. Maybe they needed the old rituals of the temple after all. And it's been about 2,000 years since then. And we're in a totally different cultural context, but many Christians still doubt that Christ alone is up to the task of being our high priest. And here's how it looks. Many people think that you need to come into a church and re-up your atonement. And what you need to do is go in and, and you go into a fancy special sacred building and uh, you go through this sacred ritual performed by a sacred man, a priest, who wears sacred robes and fancy clothes and walks around an altar. And the erroneous, maybe heretical idea is that this is all a sacrificial transaction, that somehow 
what we do in here is what makes you right with God. This is why I refuse to be called a priest. It's not because I'm humble. It's because at best, that is an erroneous notion. At worst, it might be a heresy. We have one priest. Hebrews chapter 7 challenges all this idea. Uh, The message of our passage reverberates very loud and very clear. Christ's priesthood is more foundational, more authoritative, and more lasting than any other priesthood the world over. It's all you need. So Hebrews 7 is about Jesus' priesthood. We're talking about, you'll hear the word Melchizedek, but keep in mind, Jesus. The question at stake is whether Jesus' priestly mediation is up to the task or whether we need to fall back on the one provided through Old Testament law. So you might remember that Israel followed a sacrificial system that was administered through the descendants of Levi. It was called the Levitical priesthood. The details of it are outlined in the book of Leviticus. And as Alex said a few weeks ago, the job of the priest was to mediate, go between the relationship between God and his people. So the priests present God to the people, and the priests present the people to God. Now the problem is that Jesus of Nazareth was not a Levite. He could not have been a Levitical priest because he came from the tribe of Judah. So what do we do with that? One might argue, yes, Jesus was the Messiah, but he can't mediate your relationship with God because he's not a Levite, therefore he's not a priest. You need to find some other way to mediate your relationship with God, even if you call him Savior. That would be the argument. But the author of Hebrews says, ah, but he is a priest. He's not only a priest, he is the priest. Because there is an order of priesthood right there in the scriptures, in the Old Testament law, that is more foundational, more authoritative, and more lasting than the Levitical priesthood. And it's called the order of Melchizedek. Let's look together at our passage from Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So this is referring to the short episode we found, Nicole read for us wonderfully, from Genesis 14, right? Abraham wins a battle, and then, right after that, he encounters Melchizedek. And our author, writing thousands of years later, looks back on this early event from Genesis 14, the first book of the Bible, and he invites us to ponder. Hmm. Right at the beginning of the Bible we meet this kind of shadowy figure who is called the king of righteousness. Melki means Melek, king. Uh, Zedek or Tzedek means righteousness, king of righteousness, Melchizedek. And he's the king of Salem, same root word as Shalom, S-L-M, meaning king of peace. So we have the king of righteousness who's also the king of peace who's also a priest. And the author of Hebrews is like, Hmm, guys, does that remind you of anyone? Our author continues. Remember, he's just going on what he sees in Genesis 14. 
he, Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy. This is the only time we meet him. He has neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. In the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So the argument of the passage is that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood in three ways. First, it's more foundational. F.F. Bruce points this out. He says, quote, An ancestor is regarded in biblical thought as containing within himself all his descendants. That's what the author of Hebrews means when he says that Levi was in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. I won't give you any more explanation of that. You can ask your parents at home. Um, So Abraham was Levi's great-great-grandfather. So what Abraham does, Levi does. And what Levi does, all the Levitical priesthood does. The people of Israel paid a tithe or a tenth to the Levites, and a tenth of that wealth was then paid to the Levitical priests. It was a way of supporting and acknowledging priestly legitimacy. So when Abraham gives a tenth of his spoils to Melchizedek, it's like all of Israel... Levi included are paying that tithe and acknowledging that Melchizedek's priesthood comes first. It's more foundational. Second, it's more authoritative. How do we know that the Levitical priesthood isn't like the new and improved version of the Melchizedekian priesthood? Did I just coin that term? Maybe Melchizedek was priest version 1.0 and Levi is the new and improved version 2.0. How do we know that's not the case? Well, notice, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And in the scriptures, it's always the superior one who blesses the inferior one. So Genesis 14 acknowledges Melchizedek has more authority. This isn't the new thing supplanting the old. This is the greater blessing the lesser. So it's more foundational, it's more authoritative, and third, it's everlasting The Levitical priests die, and then they're replaced by their descendants. But with this Melchizedek figure, it's kind of shadowy. There's no mention of where he came from or what happened to him after he died. Really, this is the only place in the whole narrative that we meet Melchizedek. We hear of him in Psalm 110, as we read, but that's it. The author of our letter is pointing out that there is a pattern here, or as theologians like to call it, a type in the Jewish law, the Jewish Torah, of Christ's everlasting priesthood. Now, if all this talk of Melchizedek and Levitical priesthood has you scratching your head, 
Maybe you're thinking about brunch right now in this point in the sermon. I won't make you raise your hands if you are, but this is usually the point, like we've had about a page of Melchizedek, and uh, when I'm listening to a sermon, usually I'm thinking about brunch at this point. So this is a great time to come back. Welcome back, everyone. It's great to see you. Uh, We can think about brunch in a bit, but I want to get to the point. Here's the point, I think. A good billiards player will call their shots before they make them. Eight ball, side pocket. And you're like, you can't do that. And then a great billiards player will somehow, miraculously almost, make the eight ball go in the side pocket. We can think of God like that. Buried in the Old Testament story of Abraham, Genesis 14, he calls his shot. That's what typology is. He says, I'm sending a priest who is more foundational and more authoritative than any other priest, and his priesthood will never end. And Jesus Christ alone is that priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's the foundational priest, the mediator before all mediators. He's the authority to intercede for you, and he's alive forevermore. He's not going to retire He's not up at the right hand of the Father on vacation. He's interceding. His influence will not run out. So you can really trust him. He is really able to hold you. He's not like the chairs in our parish hall. He's up to the task. Now I said earlier that the job of a priest is to present God to the people and to present the people to God. Everything goes through them. Alex said a few weeks ago, that the priests, uh, the mediators, were like the Fort Pitt Tunnel, right? Nothing comes into the city except through the Fort Pitt Tunnel, and nothing goes out of the city except through the Fort Pitt Tunnel. And like the Levitical priesthood, it gets rather jammed, and it's sometimes sticky with the smell of all kinds of things, and it's an unpleasant experience. But Jesus does all these things better. He mediates better. First, Jesus presents God to you. This is an overlooked aspect of Christ's priesthood. The pastor A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think there's some truth to that. If you think that God is harsh and exacting, then you're likely to be harsh and exacting. If you think that God is distant and apathetic, you are more likely to be emotionally distant and apathetic. But if you think that God is merciful and kind and active and good and loving and true, then all of those things are more likely to manifest themselves in your life. So much rides upon what we think when we think of God. And Paul says in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the image, the icon of the invisible God. What does that mean? It means that if you really want to know what God is like, don't go trying to figure out his character by looking at the stars or studying caterpillars or looking at the horror around the world because you'll get a very distorted image Romans 1 says that you can basically get a sense of his incredible grandeur and power 
when you look at the natural world, but it's not going to tell you his character. You want to know his character? You want to know what God is really like? Look at Jesus. When we see God rightly, when we see Jesus calling himself gentle and lowly and hanging out with lepers and outcasts and washing his disciples' feet and weeping at the, friend of his, at the death of his friend Lazarus. That's what God is like in his character. Uh, we see God rightly when we see Jesus raising that same friend from the dead and healing the sick people and driving out demons and walking on the water. He's sovereign. That's what God is really like. This is an important piece of Jesus' high priestly work. He presents God to you and to me. He shows us in his very self what God is really like. If you want to know what God is like, just read the Gospels. You can get to know him. That's the claim. It's staggering. But there's an even more important part of Jesus' high priestly ministry. He presents you to God. He not only presents God to you, he presents you to God. C.S. Lewis was a contemporary of A.W. Tozer, and I think he might have actually read that sentence that I just read to you, that the most important thing about us is what we think of when we think of God. And in June 1941, Lewis preached this sermon at Oxford, and this is part of what he said. He said this, quote, I read in a periodical, or a magazine, the other day, that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. I think he might have been reading A.W. Tozer. This is what he says. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance at all, except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. So I'll put the question to you. What does God think of you? As he looks on you right now, sitting in this uncomfortable pew at Christ Church Fox Chapel, what does he think of you? He is looking at you right now. What does he think? On a functional level, if you're like me, your answer will probably have, to some, have something to do with how good you've been lately. And whether you've managed to live up to the standards that you have set for yourself. So if you're like me, I'm just being honest, I'm not commending it, you'll usually imagine that God has a kind of disappointed scowl. He's not throwing things, but he's just kind of like disappointed. Um, but that's actually stinking thinking on so many levels. Uh, one, God is judge and penalty bearer and priestly advocating attorney all in one. The Trinity is all one, and they're all doing all these things at the same time. I can't explain it, but I'm just, don't shoot the messenger. Um, as judge, he rightly sees that your sins deserve much more than a disappointed scowl. Much more. So cheer up. You're worse than you think. You're way worse. Uh, but the judge has borne the penalty for all who hide in him, and he himself is at his own right hand pleading your case. 
I don't know how this works. Again, don't shoot the messenger. This is just what the Bible says. And it's glorious. Hebrews 7.25. He, Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's Alex's sermon text next week, so I stole it. Sorry. First uh, John 2.1. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Romans 8.33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Get the point? Paul and John both agree, and I'm not talking about the Beatles. The other New Testament authors agree too. Jesus Christ, very God of very God, presents us to God continually. He advocates for us continually. Right now, he is. So God looks upon you and hears his own intercession. This is my son. This is my daughter. I am well pleased. I love that one. I love that one. I want to close with Lewis's words from this same sermon. He says, It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. So it is. Amen.